Welcome to this week's episode of Top Lines and Tales. It's our 99th episode, so uh, next week tune in because we've got something uh, slightly different for you. But uh, this week... uh, we're continuing with our series on characters in livestock, and uh, I really enjoyed recording this particular episode. Uh, as always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro, who uh, continue to back us all the way, and uh, they are, of course, suppliers and manufacturers of quality livestock nutrition. This week on our Characters in Livestock, we're going across to the United States, and as well as our good friend, uh, Dr. Bob Hook. Bob, hello. Hello. Uh, great to be on again. Uh, we have with us Monty Souls, who's from the American Shorthorn Association uh, Executive Secretary and, and CEO there. Monty, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's glad to be with you. And I mentioned the American Shorthorn Association, and of course, this year it's been a, a massive year for the Shorthorns in, in a lot of ways. And certainly in, in the UK, we've had, well, it's across the world, there's been the celebration of 200 years since uh, Coates went out there on his horse and started producing that, that herd book. And uh, that in itself is a great achievement. And then in the US, you've got the celebration of uh, 150 years of the American Shorthorn Association. So a big year, and Monty. Yes, it really is. And we're. We are the oldest beef breed association in the United States, which is really quite a feat when you consider all the beef breeds that are here. And, and uh, you know, we're, we're, we're the first of, of all the British cattle. Bob, welcome. You've, of course, been involved in the short-on uh, celebrations as well. So it's been, been one hell of a year for the breed, hasn't it? Oh, man, yeah, they, they've had quite a time of it. It's quite, and the history of the breed is... Uh, the history of our industry because they've been here since 1783 mm-hmm. which is just amazing <laughs> that's a long long time by anybody's standards let alone american standards there and uh monty there's been celebrations going on through all the year i think they're still going aren't they how's, how's all that lot going with you uh it's been it's been uh kind of busy hectic but well received and uh yeah we've had a number of different activities and uh We'll still finish up with those activities as we get into our North American International Livestock Exhibition in Louisville in November and kind of wrap it up this year. Okay, so Louisville, probably the last big show of the season, isn't it? And uh, the biggest show, I suppose, of the season, isn't it? The culmination. And uh, and uh, uh, on this side of the water, ours was centered a little bit to the celebrations for the... 200th year uh, culminated a bit around the Great Yorkshire show and then some trips up and down to see some herds there. Did you, did you get over for that one, uh, Monty? Yes, I did. I, I actually was uh, attended the Yorkshire show, attended the World Shorthorn Conference and uh, uh, was part of that and uh, traveled through Durham County and it was going back in history a lot for the breed and where we come from and it was really, really enjoyable. It was certainly, I was at the Yorkshire show. We didn't meet each other, but I was at the Yorkshire show as well. In fact, I ran a podcast from there, from the Shorthorn Judging, and uh, what a tremendous show of Shorthorn cattle they were at that event. Oh, yeah. No, it, it was very, very impressive and uh, a lot of good cattle, and uh, it, it was it was a lot of good people. Uh, I, I think probably the people into this business is probably just as important as the cattle in many ways. Certainly so. And did you meet my good friend Fiona Sloan? Fiona was organising uh, most of the trip there. Did you come across her? Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. We met them. Yep. Uh, just just briefly on the cattle while you were over for that, Yeah, what did you make of the cattle? Some of the bulls maybe a bit bigger, chunkier than, than, than some of you guys over there. Different type of cattle would they be? Uh, yeah, it would, it would be a different kind of animal. And it was different when you went to different farms, too, quite honestly. Uh, you know, the, the, the cattle were... were uh, a frame score, two frame scores bigger than what we have here. 
they uh, probably weren't quite as moderate and didn't have quite as much depth of body built into them as what we have here. Uh, it, it was just a different type of animal that was being sought after. Uh, not that it was bad. It was just a little different and maybe a little bit more what we were doing, say, 15, 20 years ago in some ways uh-huh. uh, okay. com- compared to what we do here in the U.S. today. But uh, And then when we'd get out in the country and get on some of the farms and the operations, we would see some more influence from uh, North American genetics from both Canada and the U.S. And, and those cattle, in many cases, would have a little more similarities to what we're doing here in in some cases especially the bigger commercially more operate uh commercially focused operations isn't that an interesting concept there and we've said we've talked about that many times on this podcast and rounded about you all across the world that some of the animals that compete at the shows aren't necessarily the same ones that are functioning back there on the in the herds there and it's obviously something that you found evident oh yeah and 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 the interesting fact here is that uh i i really am a firm believer after traveling around the world for my entire lifetime uh, in this purebred livestock industry that the same issues, the same problems, the same things occur in globally. We got the same issue here in the United States. We have, we have some differences between our show cattle and differences between what's accepted in the commercial cattle industry. They have the same problem in South America. They, I see the same thing was happening in Australia. Same thing's happening over there in the U.K. It, it, it's all similar. There is very little differences between us, regardless of where we're at. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And, Bob, you'd, you'd say the same thing, I suppose. A lot of it we used to say was down to, to feeding. You'd put a lot more feed into an animal that went to the show, but it isn't. It's more than that, isn't it? It's a different type of, type of animal and different type of structure. Yeah, it's a little different kind of animal, a little different kind of structure. They got a little different end goal. Uh, you know, we used to, I used to be a manager of an operation, and we had a term we call SBI, show barn index. So uh, I think those cattle have SBI a lot of times, and the other cattle don't. That, that, that's, that's, that's a term that we kind of use sarcastically sometimes i guess that's a term i've never heard before but one i might use again actually i quite like the sound of that it's the show show barn index yeah 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 that's uh <laughs> that's a good one and just going on to the diversification a little bit within the breed you mentioned that yourself the shorthorn breed and we've again studied the shorthorn breed in history quite intensely on this podcast in the in the past and they say it's a breed for everybody and there's different types of cattle within the shorthorn breed to, to suit different types of operations whether we want to producing they want to producing offspring to sell us suckler cows or whether we're looking to produce the meat end and there is a a variation within the shorthorn breed certainly in the uk and and do you have the same there in the u.s Oh yeah, yeah, I, without question. Uh, you you've got a breed that's diverse enough to uh, take, and and anybody can come in and have different goals, and they can they can use those cattle to to achieve the goals that they want to achieve for their own operation. Uh, I, I, there's an old saying that we've used many years. I think Bob will agree with this that there's there's uh, more differences within a breed than there is between breeds, and I think that still stands true. And it that really again, it's globally. It's amazing to me how global the issues that we run into and 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 what we see in the likenesses and the, and the problems that we have within our industry is really more global than it is just to each country. Yeah, yeah, Andy, I, I, I'd add to that. that. That was one reason they were so dominant for 100 years here. I mean, they, they were the top breed by far. 
uh, you know, they, they, like I said, they came in 1783. And to put that in perspective, that's the year we signed a peace treaty with you guys, ending the, that little spat we had over uh, the colonies. And, uh, and uh, so, so there was a lot going on. And we got the, those cattle in that year. is quite amazing. But, I mean, they were cattle that you could milk, that you could have beef cattle. They were great draft animals. Uh, you know, they were good farm cattle. And 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 there was their uh, their ability to do so many things well is is what made them so valuable. Mm-hmm. And well, kept them dominant for so long. That's great that we're still shaking hands across the Atlantic now to this day, uh, <laughs> Bob. And good that we are. And and just going back to your side of it again, you mentioned briefly you were culminating with at, at the Louisville for your celebrations. What else have you done uh, with regards to the short ones through the year, uh, um, Monty? Well, we we had a book written, of course, I think you've already addressed a little bit at times on the earlier podcast that Bob, Dr. Bob wrote and uh, Burt Moore wrote. It's an awesome book that we've featured that really has captured all the history of our breed for more than 200 years uh, from cover to cover. It's something that we really needed to do. It, it, it's one of the masterpieces that, that I think will ever be done. And then, and then we also had uh, catch a calf in Denver, where they do forty calves, and the youth go catch the calf, and they uh, they basically get the calf for a year, and then they bring it back and show it, and they have a number of different areas from rated gain to best showman to best a calf, and just a number of number of different uh, areas, five different areas that they can actually win. So that, those were all shorthorns this last year. Mm-hmm just in celebration of, of, the, of the 150th. And we also had a painting commission that uh, exemplified the 150 years of the American Shorthorn Association. And we sold some proofs on that, and uh, we got prints for sale on that. And uh, it, it's been a huge success, a beautiful piece of art is what it really is. So uh, we, we've, we've done a number of smaller things. We had our big annual meeting last year which Bob attended and was on the program. And uh, we, we did a, a really awesome uh, question and answer to the membership there and took all this all the information out of the book as that was where we exposed the book. And uh, we, we just had a full hour and a half or so, I'd say, Bob, wouldn't you say, of just asking questions yep. about the breed history. And, and our membership just totally enjoyed that as, as well as we all learned a lot, quite honestly. You know, I would really recommend that, you know, if anybody is interested in the American cattle industry, it, it really is pretty much contained in this book because, the I mean, the shorthorns are really the history of of our cattle industry. It, it kind of goes from A to Z. They've been here all along, and they've gone through every up, down, and in between that uh, our industry has. So they really uh, encase our entire industry. And I think this book does a nice job of that. Absolutely. We'll, we'll, we'll verify that myself. I've got a copy on my desk right in front of me now and a, a great tone of a book. And uh, you can pick it up and go through it. Fantastic photographs and a lot of information in there. And, and well well worth a read. And, and uh, everybody will learn. Doesn't matter how much you know, everybody will learn from that. So we'll, we'll give that book a, a plug and maybe give it a plug on our on our web pages shortly. I just want to drop back into something that you said there, uh, Monty, when you said catch a calf. Do we physically have to go down to go through that? Do they let them run and they're going to run and run after them? 
Uh, actually, they don't go through that process that they used to, and the calves are actually delivered to a location. Okay. And then the, the each youth is assigned a calf, and they t- come and get their calf and take it home and have to break it to lead. And, 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 and they're responsible for it, keep a book up on it, and all the educational factors that go with managing that calf for a year. Okay, I, I've been just, I've been at the Houston Rodeo a long, long time ago, and remember seeing these youngsters literally running out there and catching, yeah. catching one and roping. Yeah, into yeah. I, I think Houston them. still does. I think Houston still has them catch them, mm-hmm. but uh, the, the, the catch a calf program in Denver has graduated a little bit and, and gone to this system. It certainly sounds a great idea. Any way to keep the young, get the youngsters involved, and particularly on this uh, on this hundred and fifty years. And Bob, just po- going back to that book, I don't. I need to obviously mention uh, Bert Moore, and I don't know anything about much that I know about yourself. I don't know anything about Bert. And how did the two of you get together? And, and sort of how long did the collaboration go on this book? And uh, and yeah, how how do how did you go about it? Well, you know, it was it was something. Uh, Dr. Top Turner was uh, chair of the committee and worked with Monty and. And some other Joe Bales and some other folks. And gosh, he, I think he called me four years in advance uh, <laughs> talking about this book. And, and uh, you know, I agreed to do it. But uh, Bert's kind of an encyclopedia of, of shorthorn knowledge. And so I said, uh, you know, if, I, if we can get Bert to work with me, it would be really, a, really a lot of fun. And, and uh, he, he agreed to do it. And I, it took us about two years to get this thing together it was a it was a good bit of work and a good bit of fun boy i learned a lot and that that's what it's all always makes it fun so and, and bird was is just one of the great people to work with on earth and you do get down into the detail a little bit and i suppose some of that comes from Bert's uh, Bert's knowledge but there'll be a lot of reference books and various things that you'll need to pull on there's a there'll be a lot of historic information to to be dug out from somewhere and um you know that, that's what takes the effort isn't it Oh yeah, but that's the fun part. I love the research, I and mean, that's 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 where the that is the fun. Let, let's just go and back that, to go back to the beginning of the shorthorns, then, or certainly the beginning of the shorthorns in the the USA. There, as you said, back to eighteen seventies, so a, a long time back, and uh, they they were the bull of choice, weren't they? Uh, um, back there in the West, going back in, into into the eighteen seventies, it was they were the only bull, I suppose. Well, I, I I'll start with that, and then Monty can take off. But yeah, whenever after this our Civil War, uh, we we took over the West and stocked the West, and they they stocked them with Longhorns, and they almost exclusively used shorthorn bulls. And we're talking about after 1865, and and for about 20 years, it was pretty exclusive shorthorn. They they kind of had the market sewn up. There were some things that happened that they got lost, but uh, you know, basically, uh, they were, there was a uh, I, there was a sensation of '73 where they they got a somebody got a corner on the Duchess uh, Bates Duchess cattle and they sold them uh, for uh, I, I, they averaged over uh, twenty thousand dollars on on the, what was left uh, twenty one thousand seven hundred dollars on these bait duchess so everybody was chasing these dual purpose cattle and that's what they were sending west the range and they needed to be sending beef shore horns so when we got into some really bad blizzards and really a droughty uh, range conditions those dual purpose cattle didn't do so well and then kind of herefords took over but that's a real shame because if they've been sending beef shore horns out to the west still may own that market but uh, it, you know, got into a purebred fad in the Midwest, and 
And we're going for the wrong kind of cattle for their Western customers. And so, it, but boy, for, yeah, for 20 years, it was it. And up into 1918, I mean, registrations peaked at 118,000. I mean, the breed was got really big. And uh, yes, you, as you say, um, different animals for different courses. And in that particular instance, there's something to be learned, I suppose, to, to make sure you've got the right animals that suit the right conditions, uh, Monty. And is that still the case? With, with Is there a geographical divide in, in the in the shorthorns that are in the U.S. today? Oh, to a degree, yes. I think probably the cattle can form and can fit about anywhere. But uh, our, our main breeder core is going to be the Midwest and the upper Midwest and basically what you would make reference back to the Corn Belt. But those cattle are working in the western United States, those folks that have them out there, and they're, they're getting used more. They're working in the southern United States and working well in, in heat-tolerant areas. So they've really adapted everywhere. You know, you know, we go back to that time frame that Bob's making reference to. The shorthorn pulled the wagons, provided the milk, and provided the beef for people to open up the western part of the United States. Now, that's, that's, that's really what happened, and then what he said is true. They didn't, they didn't send the right kind of bull out there to make the genetic improvement on the old Spanish longhorn-type cattle that they had. And as a result, it probably, well, it didn't probably, it, it actually demised the breed in their acceptance level at that, as time went on. Now that the good ones hung around and that's where we still got some of those breeders and some of that same kind of influence is still carrying on. And actually it's gaining some steam back right now. Okay. When we look yep. at where Shorthorn, where Shorthorn fits into the, United States cattle industry, their ability for heterosis and hybrid vigor is tremendous. They haven't been used extensively like some of the Angus or the Hereford cattle. So when we bring them into a crossbreeding program or a third cross or the first cross, their heterosis gets a big kick and, and they really can make a major contribution and people are starting to figure it out. Okay. okay, well, there, there we go. It's nice to see that they are coming back, and I think across the world as well, certainly in, in the UK, there's a huge uh, swing back towards you know, to, to the short horn there. And and if we at one time, of course, everybody wanted a short horn going back the way. I suppose it's pretty much a, a who's who in America. Everybody's got ever heard of short horns, and, and the same in, in, the, in the UK, I think. It was, uh, it was a fashionable thing to be in almost, wasn't it, going back the way? Well, yeah, I mean, back there in the, in the grand days, as they'd say, back there in the 40s and the 50s, uh, we had they had a club, a Chicago club. That the wealth, the wealthy people around Chicago, all you weren't anybody unless you had some shorthorn cattle. You know, and if we go back through history, it, it's a society level to be in the purebred livestock industry. That's what those people were practicing. Mm -hmm. it, it started right there in the UK with with society to be part of the. You know, in order to be accepted, you needed to have a farm and be in, a, in the purebred livestock industry and. And in some cases, we've lost some of that today, which which I think is really sad. A lot of those cattle, of course, would come from Scotland originally, or come from the UK primarily from Scotland, I guess. And uh, the Scottish cattle did uh, did dominate, didn't they? There was uh, yeah, the, the, the importations. But has there been some more importations since? Or are we sort of still seeing some cross-trading going both ways here? I don't think we see quite as much today as what you saw back in that era. I mean, in, during that era... It was not uncommon for those breed leaders to go over and, and buy, you know, they'd bring them over on boatloads and, and they'd go over and buy a bunch of cattle, bring them back, and then they'd sell them in their sales and they could double and triple their money. 
because the, the, those that wanted to take the risk got rewarded very well. But uh, we don't move cattle that much anymore between the embryo and semen activities that go back and forth and health regulations. We just don't move livestock that much, live animals that much anymore in all reality. Well, Andy, at that time for a while, you know, when, when he when Monty's talking about, I mean, it seems like people didn't think we could breed a good Hertz sire here. And if you didn't have a Scottish Hertz sire, you weren't in fashion. And if you didn't have a Scottish herdsman, you weren't in fashion. Yeah. You, no, you kind of had to have both. Whoever one came come, over with a bull became your herdsman too. One come with the other. In fact, when I, I traveled to South America and Argentina extensively and you would be amazed at the number of Scottish Scotsmen that are down there today that are still there that went there when they were young men because they needed a Scottish herdsman down there for their cattle. And now they got their own families and they've, they've started a new life there. I think it's one of Scotland's biggest and best exports. You're dead right. They, uh, and still sought after all over the world now and still some great stockmen, thankfully, still in the, still in Scotland. there. But at, at some stage... Um, well, the short-ons did lose their popularity, didn't they, as they did over here, and, and uh, to, to the point where you know, they, were, they were almost a minor breed, and uh, yeah, it was a, that was a massive shake-up for, 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 I suppose, for yourselves and the association that you have there. Um, yeah, how, how did you turn that around? Well, I, I think what happened, Andy, is that you, you've got every breed goes through it at, during cycles, and they get complacent, and they get lazy, and they start thinking they own it, and they don't have to do this, and they don't have to do that, and they have to keep making genetic improvement, breed improvement, and stay on top and keep leadership roles. And that's what happened to Shorthorn. It's happened to other breeds. But but reality is when you get caught and you wake up and say, ah, we lost it, now you got to start digging yourself out of the hole. It, it's not a lot different than a a good soccer team or we our U.S. football team or basketball team, you, you start to put the ingredients back in there that you got to have, and then you have to breed really good ones, and you got to show the world how good they are and how they work, and then you'll get it back. Uh, it, it's, it's good cattle still dominate, and good, good can, be mean, can be met with a lot of different avenues, but today the, the data – the technical a part of EPDs and DNA, genomics, and everything that enters into the factor is a huge factor of being good and being recognized as being progressive, and and that's what we're doing at the American Shorthorn Association, and and I think we're I think our our breeders are starting to reap that reward at this time now that they they have the tools that they can that they can go out and and, and regain that market share. If I could add to that. Then. Uh, the, you know, whenever they were leading into it, uh, Shorthorn had had a 150 year advantage on the other breeds in terms of growth and and you know muscle and just I mean they were just bigger, faster growing cattle. They were larger cattle. They were faster growing cattle. And then when we got into the, the 50s in the very early 60s, they downsized those cattle so much. And you guys were downsizing them as fast as you can to sell to us and and really kind of tanked both uh, our industries and took the performance out of the cattle compared to the other breeds. And and and, and then Monty's talking exactly how to how did they get it get out of it and got out of it. But I mean really that's what happened is is kind of shot ourselves in the foot by just trying to outsmall everything. 
And uh, but but the, you know they got out of it the right way, getting out of it the right way, and, and making them popular. In 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 the UK, I would say one of our demises of the the native breeds, and I'll put a couple or three breeds there, the, the Angus and the Hereford, into this one as well, which were so dominant, is the arrival of the Continentals just at a time when the native breeds were at their lowest ebbs, and that's obviously something that's had a, an incrementing factor on, on the popularity of all these breeds. But more recently, I would say there's something would be on your side, bearing, bearing in mind the people we've spoken to, would you have a a, a competitor against the hybrids that are now starting to pop up there, or does it, does the shorthorn cement itself into that hybrid uh, operation? Well, I think the hybrid, com- they call them composites a lot of times here. Uh, th- they're getting a lot of, of, of traction right now, and, and they will. And, and if they got a true, good, planned-out process for a hybrid or a composite, they, they have a lot of value if, if they still can keep the data and keep the, the data behind them and can and document them. That's the biggest thing. Just to go out here and make a crossbred cow without data is not going to fly in today's world. And and those cattle do have some merit, and, and shorthorn can be part of that. You know, shorthorn is, I don't know, Bob can probably, he's done the research on it better than I have, but uh, we've always been told that shorthorn is has been contributed to 53 breeds around the world there's no other breed that's made that kind of contribution to all these other breeds around the world the, the santa gratuitous cattle known, known from the king ranch here in, in the united states uh, uh have a lot of, of shorthorn in them there, there there's just a huge impact that shorthorn brings to the table when when we start putting shorthorn out here and and crossing them with something else and then start keeping track of it and trying to develop something your speckled park cattle or i could just go on and on and on with with breeds that have had that shorthorn influence and we went through the same thing here andy that that you're talking about when the continentals come in it just become fashionable and i think some ways i hope and feel like our education process that we all look at i've got a few more gray hairs than i used to have i guess but I would really hope that we've become educated enough not to let fashion dictate what we do in our purebred livestock industry and, and start using this technology that we've developed for the betterment of it. You know, I'll, I'll share one thing when we talk about this, this bringing in other breeds. One of the continental breeds that came in here to the United States that was similar to or seemed to fit a little bit, especially from a color combination at the time, was the main Anjou cattle. And so the Maine Anjou and Shorthorns really got crossed a lot. And the Shorthorns opened up their herd book and Maine Anjou started out opening up their herd book because they didn't have very many of them. Well, between Maine Anjou's, Keonias, a lot of other breeds of cattle that have come into the Shorthorn breed, we're now basically looking at most of the cattle that are coming in from the outside. That we, that we need them to come in because it makes our breed better if they're good ones, are going to be a lot of Angus. And God knows we have tried everything we could to ruin a shorthorn cow, but it can't be done. I'm just telling you, it can't be done because it's been tried through the years. We've had all these years behind us. These cattle still have a better yield grade than the other British breed cattle over here. They still will put marbling into their ribeye area before they'll put fat on their back. They are a breed that makes a contribution, and they could not take it out of them. God gave them a gift that they will never let go. <laughs> I like, I like. 
Yeah, you have short arm pluses, so you have a planned program, don't you, Monty? Oh, yeah. Our short arm plus program is 30% of our registrations. It's important. It's important to us. There, there's nothing that will help you more than bringing in a really good animal of another breed and then breeding up and, and bringing in good solid genetics with documentation and performance data behind it as we start to move on and breed on up. That's how you make progress. And, and, and you, you do that through International Genetic Solutions, so you, 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 that's a pooled database, correct? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're part of the International, which is, which is a genetic evaluation that fares our EPDs that is part of 20 different breed associations. And it includes Australia shorthorns, Canada shorthorns, New Zealand shorthorns, the U.S. shorthorns. We, we need to get U.K. shorthorns on it. Mm-hmm. This global atmosphere that we can get today because of technology is going to be a huge factor in the sustainability of any breed, but especially this breed, because we have so much heritage and tradition. It, it is a fantastic tool, the IGS, and I think we've st- again talked about this with uh, with one of our guests, uh, Chip, here in, in, in the past, that all the animals are on there, and you mm-hmm. can compare one against the other one. That does give you a huge leg up, doesn't it, within within the industry? You can really see where you sit, can't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you, if you want to go look at a shorn bull and compare it to a Semmental bull, all you got to do is look at the piece of paper. It's comparable. Mm-hmm. So so now you can, now you know what you're looking at. And, and then the big, the other factor in it, it makes our data more accurate. We, we're not a huge registration here in the United States. We're still registering over 15,000 head, but that's not big compared to some of them. So when we can get that comparison and get the amount of data that we get comparison with, 25% of the shorthorn cattle that we have in our genetic data bank right now are not in our registry, but they're shorthorns that are working in the Simmental registry or the Red Angus registry or another registry. So it gives us this huge advantage to make the data we got even more accurate. I, I will just step back into one thing. Um, again, it seems, and it, it often comes over th- that way, that the p- actual purebred uh, societies themselves are starting to lose a little bit of, of um, necessity when we do have things like the IGS out there. And you're obviously, you're CEO of the Shorthorns in, in the US there, a huge, a huge job and accolade there. Um, what do you do to, to sort of maintain your own viability as, as a, a single pure breed? Well, I, I think I, I would actually say that I would I would disagree with your comment, quite honestly, because I think it's really important and there's still a huge following for br- every breed of, of cattle. It, it's, it's similar to a religion. People have a passion for their breed of cattle. And, and that breed of cattle will sustain because it has a purpose. And, and, and with the technologies that we have today, we're just able to compare those cattle across breeds where we didn't used to be able to do that. That doesn't mean that breed's going to go away. That doesn't mean we're going to breed all the shorthorn cattle to some other breed and that some other breed's going to breed it to us. In order for it to work and to maintain heterosis and maintain the, the hybrid vigor that a breed can bring, like shorthorns, you're going to have to have a number of purebred cattle, and they're going to have to be good ones. And when they're good and you got them, 
they will make a contribution to a lot of other areas within the within the beef cattle industry. That's something certainly that we have heard from breeders on here saying there is a role for the purebred. The purebred has to be there for before you, you can't have a compensate without having a purebred, so it needs to be there. If we just go and look at your role particularly there, you're obviously you're in the position of marketing the you know the short on breed across to you know, and, and growing your, your membership. I think you said uh, fifteen thousand registrations there. What else you, you, you bill yourself as the family friendly breed. So are we looking at sort of smaller breeds? Is here um, people with just a, a small interest in it rather than large operations? Uh, I think we have the bulk of our membership is going to be uh, basically a smaller breeders. I mean, 40, 50 cow herds. Uh, there, there, there's, you know, even, even if you go look at the, the huge breed, breed like Angus, if you break that down to the average number, the average number of cows that a breeder has, it's not more than like 12 or 15. So, there, there's a lot of small breeders in every breed. We don't have as many big breeders, so the bulk of our breeders are going to be 40, 50, to 100 cow herd owners. So, yeah, we call it family-friendly because our people are open-armed. They want new people to come in. They're friendly. They're not going to be backstabbers. They're competitive, but they're going to root for their neighbor to win if they can't win if they're in a show ring. It's really it's – really, a family-friendly atmosphere, and that's why we advertise it. The other thing that we've we've started to reach out to is a shorthorn beef program that we can market beef to the housewife through our, that family-friendly atmosphere. So if we can get these breeders, these these families that are in 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 and around metropolitan areas, and they can contact and get contact with an average housewife suburban housewife they can bring their family out to the farm pick out their steer meet the other kids on the farm they can run out there in the pasture with those cattle our cattle are docile enough there's a whole lot of good things that can happen when we can start to cross those bridges and you've got the same bridges over there i saw it when i was there and and it's a concern of your breeders over there that we've got to relate to the consumer We've got to bridge that gap and let them know what we are, that we care about our animals and, and we and we are good stewards and good husbandries of our product that we that we offer to them on, a, on a daily basis. So th- that crossover is really important and it can be done through that family friendly atmosphere. You're absolutely right there, Monty. I think the disconnect that, that has happened over the last two or three generations from the mm-hmm. where the feed comes from um, has been lost, and there's some massive programs now to build that bridges back again, so that we can get some some clarity and and, uh, and people you know people across the world appreciate that. And it sounds like you're doing a great job for that. And you have a you have a good uh, junior program running as well amongst you, encouraging youngsters to come into into the breed and into the business. Oh yeah, I, I mean it's it's. It's 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 really and again it's that family atmosphere. We've got a really good junior advisor. We've got good young people. We got great young people there that are college type students, age students that are our junior board. They're innovative. We're we're, we're challenging our our youth to do better and bigger things. The families come together for a week every year. It, it's just one of the great atmospheres that you could ever walk into. They've all got a common goal of, of, of have a passion for shorthorns and a passion for one another that's in the breed at the same time. You know, we talk about these cattle all the time, Andy, and, and, and they're, they're important. They're our tool. They are our tool. And, and we want some really good cattle. We need them to be 
accepted in the commercial ranks. We need him to be accepted in the show ring. We need him to be accepted in every level. But the important part is the people, the membership. Our members are the important part of our of our organization. And when our members can unite, have a good time, respect one another, and actually look out for one another and become lifelong friends. There's many of these youth go to this junior national every year and their best friends are long distances. When they go to school, they go back to school in the fall. They're they're emailing and sending pictures of this or that. And they're they're they've just created a friendships that they reunite every year for a week. That's brilliant. That sounds like a brilliant event. And I guess at all all the shows the shows would be a strong thing for, for a breed like yours, I guess. There'll be classes at all the shows across the nation there that uh, that attract Attract the same people, maybe, or the same breeders, or are they different breeders from different areas? Is, is, is you said about Louisville is a big, big. Is that a stronghold for the show talk? Well, Louisville is one of our biggest shows. Has been for years. It's like there's a magnet that just draws shorthorn breeders to Louisville to that North American Livestock Show. Uh, our new show that we got at Cattlemen's Congress in Oklahoma City is 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 gaining that same reputation. Quite honestly. But what what ha- there, there's different exhibitors in different areas. The United States is unique in all the traveling that I've done. Our junior programs here in the United States is unique compared to any other place I've been in the world. There, there's, there's a lot of emphasis put on it. All the breeds put a lot of emphasis. We put a lot of emphasis on it. It's our, it's our future. These young people, I mean, if you go around our board of directors, I think I've got three past junior board presidents that are sitting on the board of directors right this minute okay. and 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 those are our future leaders uh, we we had a a major breed seminar in 2015 and we did a, a survey 61 percent of the people that attended that event were past junior members that were adults now so it is important that that's how we maintain our breed and the sustainability of our breed is to bring those youth through and, and, and they become our, our future leaders and become our future breeders. Amen. That's absolutely right. Monty, can you give, get a, give an idea of the, like, the number of cattle you have at your junior show in the summer and, and the other events you, uh, that are, are uh, connected with your junior yeah, show? Yeah, yeah we, had over a, we had over a thousand head entered at our junior national in June this year, and we had uh, close to 800 head show up. We had 450 young exhibitors, youth exhibitors there. And we do more than show cattle. We have a lot of contests. They do speech contests. They have a quiz bowl contest. They have photograph contests. We do a graphic design contest. They do crafts and arts. I mean, I could go on and on and on. We give out over a thousand awards during that, during that week. So it's a huge event and, and, and it's called it with a youth conference. And quite honestly, the contest side of it's just as big as the cow side as the show, it's a show cattle. When we go to Louisville, between uh, the juniors and the seniors, both we'll show somewhere between five and six hundred head right there at that Louisville show. At uh, at uh, Cattlemen's Congress, it'll be very similar. We'll, we'll I think we had uh, five hundred and fifty, almost six hundred last year there, and I think we were probably right about the same. And it was within five or six head of one another at both those two major shows. You go on to to some other state shows. It's not unusual for a state. I was just down to Tulsa State Fair this last weekend, and that was an open show. But uh, there might have been 
five people leading an animal out that day that weren't juniors. But it was an open show. It was a regional open show. And there were 72 head in the, in the shorthorn show and 40, 42 head in the plus show. So we, we had 100 head exhibited there. And there was less than four or five people that, that were adult breeders that brought them. The rest of them were kids. They'll all be back to the same location as next week, plus another 30 to 50 kids to bring their junior cattle. So it's a huge it's a huge market. It's a huge activity that we have to nurture and take care of because it is developing not only the future leaders of our industry, we're actually developing the future leaders of our country and our local communities because they're learning responsibilities. They're learning a lot of things they'll never learn any other way but when they become a part of agriculture and looking after animals. Monty, what a commendable thing to be doing, and it sounds like you're doing it right as well. If you're getting those numbers in, that's absolutely uh, superb there, and hats off to you that you are encouraging those youngsters, as you said, the future of the industry. And let's just go back a little bit to yourself, uh, uh, Monty. You didn't just get here by, by accident. I'm sure you were a youngster once, and you've come up through the ranks as well. Can you give us a little bit more of, uh, of your background as how you ended up being CEO of the Great Breed? I got lucky. Uh, <laughs> to be, be really honest, it's always been a dream to do this. And I've been fortunate and got lucky to do it. I've, I've been able to do and reach many of the goals that I had established for myself in life. Believe it or not, I grew up on a turkey farm in Michigan. And we had, we had two cows that my sister started, to, started with. They were Hereford cows. And uh, I kind of grabbed hold of those. And with that grew a little bit as the turkeys disappeared and everything kind of we ended up really having some financial distress within the family over that turkey business back during the 60s uh i i the herford deal just grew for me and i i I learned to love the cattle industry and then i was fortunate enough to get a job at managing a place in new york and that 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 person was very educational for me and taught me a lot and then we moved that operation out to the western part of the united states the southwest and to oklahoma and that grew even a little bigger. And then we sold that operation, found another owner to take to take over the operation, kept the same crew together. And that went for another, I guess that one was 11 years. And then I found another owner to take that over when they were, they were ready to move on. And that went for another nine or 10 years. So I was able to manage that with the same group of people for 35 years. And we become our own family at that point. And I was able to show 49 national and reserve national champions over that time and developed a commercial bull market. And we just basically became one of the premier Hereford operations. Uh, I was working as a consultant in Argentina for about 18 years. So I just went through to just grew up through the industry and went through it to the school of hard knocks, to be quite honest. And when we got through dispersing that operation out and, Everything was settled down. Shorthorn was looking for somebody, and I was fortunate enough that they hired me to do it here, and I've totally enjoyed the challenge. Sounds like a great life you've had there and a great life with livestock. And as you said, earned your spurs doing that. And something Bob mentioned to me a, a, a while ago, actually, was was something called ride the riding the rail, which is, to me, it sounds like a idyllic um, something from the sort of 1940s where cowboys would sort of jump on the trains and take the animals from one show to another. And seemingly you've got a little bit of information around that, uh, around that subject yourself there, Monty. Well, believe it or not, my dad grew up in the state of Iowa and his family was in the purebred shorthorn business. And he used to ride the rail and take the cattle from county fair to county fair by, by train. 
and they would unload those cattle. And I got pictures of him leading those cattle down Main Street to go to the county fair, and then they'd go back, get on the train, and go to the next county fair. And, uh, you know, back there in the uh, – Bob's done more of the research on it, but even into the 50s, uh, they, they would have had uh, the, the rail. I mean, it was not unheard of for those great the great herds in the United States to get out, to have a boxcar or have their own boxcar. In fact, they might even own it. And they would have it set up special to haul show cattle in it. And they would get on the rail and they'd take those cattle from the East Coast to the West Coast. And they might be out six to eight weeks. Some of them would be out two to three months that they'd be out on the road with those cattle. And in, in fact, they'd have to be, they'd have to sell some of them while they're on the road because the cattle grew and the boxcar wasn't big enough to get them all in if they didn't sell some. You know, some of them actually were out for eight months out of the year. They would go in three stages. They would have that, you know, they would start at uh, uh, Arizona National the first of the year and go go through the Texas shows and and uh, and uh, Denver, et cetera. And then they would hit the the summer shows, uh, the the state fairs, and then the and the fall show uh, through uh, Chicago. First of December, right after Thanksgiving, and so they—I mean—they were out for a long, long time. It yeah, was, I mean, uh, I mean I'm, yeah, I've talked to those guys that started out in Timonian, Maryland, and they'd actually go to the Cow Palace in California and 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 PI and in, in uh, Pacific International and in, in Oregon, and then they'd go back to Chicago, and then they'd go home. Incredible. So I—I I mean, it, it was. It was a different time and a different era, but it was in the, and it was a time when everybody looked after everybody else. It wasn't, I mean, everybody was concerned and they, everybody took care of everybody else and they all worked together when they had to. That's brilliant. I mean, it does still go on, to be fair. It does, um, we still, we've got a, two or three outfits over here in the UK. One who's supposed to be on the podcast this week, actually, who goes from show to show and sail to sail doing that and, and uh, another outfit of, um, of uh, Duncan McLaren and, and Petty O'Kane, they were they, they run four or five teams of cattle and do all the shows in the summer. But it is it's it's a great life and a great to, a young man's life, I guess, and just idyllic. And it's something I'd love to study a lot more of. But that was interesting that uh, that your own father Monty was was involved in that. Yeah, it 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 was it was an era that it's it'll never come back. <clears throat> but it was uh, the, one of the gentlemen that was in the business owns the Southern Railroad Company, and they had a special railroad car. Uh, fixed up they actually poured eight inches of cement in the floor of that railroad car so it wouldn't rock when they dropped when it went down the road down the rail it wouldn't rock so those cattle it wouldn't rock back and forth so those cattle didn't rock they they were just solid on ground and they put bedding on top of it and then those cattle were in it they had a generator in it they had electricity run down the side so they could run blowers and blow the cattle they had a wash rack in the other end of it they had a bunks with a cook stove and a heater in, the, in one end of it. They had that thing set up. It was living quarters, and when they hit Denver or those those fairs where there was a rail siding, they just stayed in the car all the time, and then they just buy some feed whenever they got to a location and restocked their car, and they were ready to go. They could, they could, they could be in that car for weeks on end, basically, and they'd wash them every day and rinse them and clip them and had the power and they, they they were very self sufficient. It, it was it was a it was an awesome time, really. 
phenomenal. And there will still be people that do that, as I said today, but obviously it's in their trucks now and, and, and their living quarters and various things. But it is, you know, they, they were just fantastic days in the bygone world. Um, Monty, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Let's just go back to the shorthorns and just sort of give me your appraisal of where the shorthorn you think is going within. I mean, I think we've covered some of this, but it's going within the, the US and the world for that matter. Is, is it is it on for world domination? Are we just going to head onwards and upwards or, or, or is it finding its, its, its mark now? <clears throat> well, I, I really believe that shorthorn cattle, not only in the U.S., but I think on a, on a global standpoint, are are getting back some of their market share. And again, as the as what goes around comes around, as the old saying says, uh, I, I think we're starting to see us get it. You're getting back a little bit of it in the U.K. They're getting it back in Australia. I'm seeing them getting it back in South America. We're getting it back here. Uh, I, I really think we're going to start to see some of that. I think the, the industry is seeing a need for some shorthorn cattle again. They're, they're seeing a need to do something a little different. They're getting tired of just black on black on black, and they're seeing that it's going to cost them money until they go do something else. So so I, I do think there is a long road ahead that's going to be on an upward upward slant that's going to be good. Now, are you going to become this dominant breed that we once were? Yeah, that, that may be stretching it a little bit, but it's not impossible. It, it, it's, anything is impossible because most of these breeds that get on top self-destruct. And, it, and, and it's just a matter of time before they self-destruct, and then somebody else picks up the leadership role and they self-destruct. So as a result, I really believe that we have the ability, we have the product, we have the animals, we have the breeders. And we have the passion within our breed to carry it forward and do some things that would be that will keep us out there in front and, and let us grow as a, as a breed here in the United States. And I really believe that's going to happen worldwide. I, I mean, the, the things about that we have to be sensitive to methane gas environments, you know, animal rights, there, there's all kinds of new things that we have to be sensitive to that we didn't used to have to worry about besides having a good product and and i think we're all aware of it and 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 i come back from the uk world conference feeling like our friends over there our fellow breeders over there are probably even ahead of us here in the states on that sensitivity of trying to make sure we get that share of the market and once we get recognized for being that we'll get we'll get a bigger share because we are a consumer driven industry whether we want to admit it or not well, that's, that's absolutely brilliant. And like, your passion comes through there, uh, Monty. That's certainly for sure there. And, and we'll just have one sort of final word, if you like, from this fantastic book and this fantastic year that you've had, this 150 years and the 200 years of the Coats Herd book. And, and uh, I, my listeners probably don't want to know where they can get hold of this book. And you know, how's the sales and marketing going of this, of this, of this job now? And uh, is it doing what it should have done? Yeah, we, we, we've, we have hit the projections that we thought we would hit on the sales of the book. It can be ordered on the Shorthorn American Shorthorn Association website, which is shorthorn.org. And uh, the, the, there's an order form on there for the book. Uh, it, it's fairly expensive to get it across the pond to get it to you, but we'll find ways to get it done. And uh, it's it's been a remarkable piece of literature that I am extremely proud of. Thanks to Dr. Bob Hogue and Dr. Burt Moore. I had a very small part of this, but I am so proud to have a little part of it because this is truly one of the great 
books about the livestock industry that'll ever be written, period. And I don't think there'll ever be another one like it again in modern history. Well, uh, it's awfully nice of you to say. Well, you know, one thing I, I would say, though, on the uh, in terms of where Shoreline is going is, is you have to have leadership. And Monty does know the show wrote it. Uh, I know I used to take it by judging teams there in the early 80s. Ace Pole Herefords in Dutchess County, New York. He knows the commercial industry. He values the data. He knows the juniors. And and so it, it, leadership is everything. And I think that they're in good shape there. And I think that's going to take them a long way into the future. Well, that certainly sounds like your leadership is coming through there that I can I can hear of you, Monty. And uh, you, you for, for all your experience, you look like you're the right man in the right role and, and, and the right, going in the right direction. So it's been an absolute uh, pleasure to hear of, of, of the history of the breed and how the breed is going forward. Uh, Monty, thank you. Uh, extremely thank you for, for your, taking your time to speak to us today. Well, thank you for having us. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's always great to visit with other cattle people and, and enthusiastic people about our industry. And Dr. Bob, brilliant book. Well done. Bob and I are still doing a few things together ourselves. And uh, it's um, it's great to see, Bob, that you're always still busy. But uh, the fruits of, of your hard work, it's nice to see that out there and, and doing well. Well, it's always fun. It's all, I mean, and it was enjoyable. Boy, like I said, you always are learning. Every, every, you say every day is a school day. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Top Lines and Tales. My apologies, there's a little bit of feedback in uh, in one of the microphones on that episode. And uh, thank you very much, as always, to our sponsors, Harbro. And if you're thinking about uh, feed rations for this winter, have you thought about feeding uh, Rumitech, uh, an additive unique to Harbro, which is proven to improve animal performance, killing out percentage, and reduce methane emissions? So thanks very much to our sponsors, uh, Harbro. And I noticed that Harbro will also be sponsoring Live Scott and the Premier Meat Exhibition uh, later in this month. And uh, thanks to all you listeners. Uh, as always, if there's uh, any more information uh, you'd like to see, you can look out our Facebook page, Top Lines and Tales Facebook page, There'll be photographs on there about uh, this and other episodes. Thank you.